Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Lutzi Stamm is a former member of the Swiss Parliament. Mr. Stamm has been a guest on this program in the past when we've talked about the referendum process in Switzerland where the people of the country have the right constitutionally to overrule the government and say no. And they have the right to introduce legislation, which if then agreed to by a majority of Swiss people during a referendum, the government has the responsibility to to uh, create that legislation. Lucy, thank you very much for the time. I'm, I'm, am I still describing this, the process properly? <laughs> yes, yes. And I first would like to say hello to the Canadians. Um, I'm 68 years old, and um, one of my, uh, my happiest year I spent was in um, North America as an exchange student in 1771. And as you pointed out, I've been in the Parliament. I was 28 years there. I was the longest-serving member of the House of Representatives. And again, I greet Canada. That's the first remark. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. But the, the, uh, the, the, proce- the process is as I described it, yes? Yes. Um, you perfectly summarized it. Um, everybody can say, um, I don't agree with a law. Um, they just... Um, um, imposed, and it, the Swiss population can collect 50,000 signatures, and then um, you have to go and vote on it, and the majority of the population decides. So um, what? Whether whether, whether it's uh, any any subject, and I firmly believe the average population, whether it's in Canada or in Switzerland, is smarter than the politicians perhaps not smarter smarter but the politicians are very very often interest group bound whereas the average population just they say their opinion and then the majority wins i think that's a tremendously good system well, yes, and so what happens now? So the Swiss people said no to the proposed legislation that 1990 emissions levels would have to be dropped by 50% by 2030. So the Swiss population, by majority, said no. So the government cannot move forward with this law, yes? Correct. They have to work out a new law. When I was now on the streets, um, um, with a, when I heard what the, the voters said, i give you an example. Some of them might say, um, are you crazy to pull the money out of my pocket? Because the question of climate, that is because of the population bomb. We had 2 billion, 4 billion, now it's 8. As long as you can't stop this, the climate is going to get warmer because the, the emission, you know what I mean. Some others might say, the scientists know 
if you look at the sun with binoculars, you see these black dots in the sun. When they increase, the climate gets colder. And when the sun is brightly yellow, it gets warmer. And um, I said to myself, when Europe in the Roman times, um, like around the year such and such, um, 400 after after Christ, suddenly it became cold, etc. So there might be a lot of truth in arguments like that. Yeah. Um, Lucy Storm, you you talk to right now. I don't have the knowledge. Well, let me ask you then. Let me because you know, there's it's such a it, we we can get into the debate about climate very very easily. All we have to do is Correct. raise the issue, and then a whole room gets engaged. How? Um, how energetic was the national debate in Switzerland about this particular issue before the referendum vote? They had a very broad discussion because it's a problem which is actually very much on the table. Um, and again, we had arguments through all different of all different kinds. Um, I think nobody neither in Canada nor in Switzerland, um, contests if you have a car and it um, uses so-and-so many gallons, um, it is better to construct motors which consume less. Nobody is against this. But if you have the question, what concretely do you have to do, um, you can, for for instance, tax um, the gasoline, or you can say, hey, you need motor parts which make the consumption better, et cetera, et cetera. So you can discuss about the concrete law. So if, if, if there were, if the Swiss government pivots now and says, well, let's introduce legislation which makes gasoline more expensive, would the Swiss people be in agreement with that? That was um, a subject discussed very much. Um, and I understand, i give you a concrete example. Um, Zurich is our biggest town. So I realized the people who live in Zurich, they don't necessarily need a car. But then if you're living somewhere up in the Alps um, and you, you have to have the car just to go and drive to work, for them, people like farmers who are not, not rich, them, for them, um, this, this, this taxation okay. would have been much harder. Um, so um, I don't know why the average people at the end said no, but I understand the arguments. Okay. Like the, the, the people who live in towns as a tendency um, voted yes for, for, for this law, right. and the people on the countryside, they voted no, and then the percentage, it was over 50% no. Yeah. So, uh, just in conclusion then, it is now up to the federal government of Switzerland to adjust its legislation Correct. and try again, proposal. because the Swiss people said no to this one, yes? Correct. Okay. Lucci, it's great speaking with you. I, I mean, you're making me feel homesick now. <laughs> I know. And I'm Canadian. Come on. Be Californian girls. That was that was the Beach Boys. And it's Stop it. just as nice in Vancouver. Um, all okay. the best to you. And uh, I hope we're going to meet personally. We someday. will. We will. 
Professor Jack Mintz is the President's Fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. He's uh, been included in the Order of Canada, received the Queen Elizabeth Diamond Jubilee Medal. His uh, recent research is achieving the four-day work week. And uh, I read an op-ed by Professor Mintz in the Financial Post a couple of days ago. This fall's ballot question, what does your climate policy cost? Professor Mintz joins us on the Chorus Radio Network. Good to have you back on the show, Professor Mintz. You begin the op-ed with a reference to the Swiss referendum on emissions. We spoke with a Swiss parliamentarian in the last hour about this and about how the process works over there as far as the people through direct democracy having the right to overrule, constitutionally having the right to overrule government. How could we apply that in this country? (laughs) Well, actually, it's a good question. I wish we would. I wish we would, too. Because... uh, um, you know, and, and you know, and we see it even in the United States. Some of the states have, uh, you know, use referendum a lot more than we do. Um, but you know, I think it's, I think there's a lot to it. I think we we tend to get very focused on representative democracy, which means we elect people, they make the best decision according to the information, and da 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 da. But I don't see any reason why we can't uh, have an opportunity. We give an opportunity for people to overturn legislation that they don't like. And, so, the, uh, of course, Switzerland is a smaller country, but, you know, uh, why not, if, you know, a million people sign a petition, why not go ahead and, and uh, have a referendum? Yeah. So the Swiss people, by majority, told their federal government that the proposed legislation to reduce 1990 emissions by 50% by 2030 was not acceptable to the people. So now the government has to go back and rewrite their particular legislation or make a change to it significantly. And you write that the Swiss vote should be a sharp reminder to governments everywhere about climate policy and how it can stoke public anger. Talk to us about that, please. Well, uh <laughs> Well, I, I, um, I actually, the, the two, uh, well, there are actually four environmental uh, policies that were uh, rejected um, by the population. Uh, two of them was on climate change, and that was to put a ticket on airline, on airline uh, tickets and, uh, you know, putting a, t- a tax on airline tickets, and the other one was to put a uh, increased fuel tax, and both were defeated by about a margin of, like, 52 to 48. Um, but then there were two other ones that were to... Um, uh, disallow chemicals being uh, used in agriculture and uh, are related to that. And uh, those were even more strongly uh, voted down by almost two to one. So uh, it wasn't a very good day for environmentalists, even though some uh, other referenda were, were passed uh, that day. But it does show you that, uh, you know, the public, uh, I don't think, is fully aware of the potential higher prices and taxes that they're going to be paying uh, for an energy transition that's going to be very expensive. Uh, and even, you know, and I've seen estimates as high as $141 trillion worldwide uh, over the next 30 years, and that was done by the International um, uh, Renewable Energy Agency that uh, did that estimate. And there's been other ones going up to 2040, like $100 trillion, whatever, but there's massive amounts of money that's going to have to be spent. And people don't realize they're going to be paying more for cars, they're going to be paying more for energy, they're going to be paying more for manufactured goods because they they require energy to be spent, uh, be incorporated as a cost and things like that to produce. And and so there's going to be, uh, an, uh, you know, there's going to be higher prices that are going to be exacted by people to pay for energy transition. And if they're willing to pay it, that's one thing. But if they're not willing to pay it, uh, they're going to let their politicians know. And this is when you get the backlash happen, uh, as it did in Ontario. Uh, Back in uh, you know when the Ford government uh, got elected in uh, 
2018. Well, I'm in Ontario, and I remember very well Kathleen Wynne eventually, the former premier, eventually saying she made a, quote, mistake, end quote, I'll say, because we're now looking at multiples of billions of dollars that we're going to have to pay for, the ratepayers in the province of Ontario, to cover for Ms. Wynne's mistake, some $4 billion in the, next, in the, in the not-too-distant term, from what I gather. Uh, so how do we make this, though, into a political ballot, or at least a ballot issue, in, in 2021? Let me morph you over from economics to politics. That's the same thing. Well, I think, uh, I think people should be asking uh, the question, what is it going to, how are you going to get to the 2050 net zero target, and what is it going to cost, and what is the least cost way of getting there? Uh, we're not getting answer, any answers from governments on that, uh, from any politicians. Uh, in fact, people just kind of gravitate to policies, keep talking about targets, uh, but they don't talk about the costs and they don't talk about the prices that we're going to be facing associated with those costs, nor the tax revenues that are going to be needed to, you know, to pay for all the subsidies that, that are that are being embedded in all the budgets right now. And and um, and and I think this is a huge mistake. You know, I. I read a terrific study done in New Zealand on, on trying to get to net zero by 2050, and they looked at three plans uh, and costed them. And, and one of them was just raising the carbon tax. And they said, well, an $800 carbon tax, tax by 2050 can get us to net zero. And they said, well, maybe there's another way of doing it uh, cheaper than that. And lo and behold, they looked at particular innovations. If they can get them done, you know, they're not certain yet, but one of them, for example, vaccinating cheap so uh, you can cut back methane (laughs) and uh and that um you know that they found would actually be a cheaper way of getting to the target if if we if if we could find the vaccine but this is the sort of thing we need to do people don't realize you know if we go to hydrogen for example you have to build a whole new pipeline system it can't you cannot use natural gas and oil pipelines you're going to be constructing a whole new set of yeah. Of, uh, of of pipelines to you know infrastructure just for that, uh, and and it goes on. You know, windmills and solar panels are located in one part of the country, but if you want to use the electricity in another part, you're going to have to build new transmission lines, and and the story goes on. It doesn't mean that you don't you know you don't have to pay for these, or that you know that people that you know if they really want to have the you know this change made. But they should realize they're going to end up paying more for this, and and they should understand that. Well, you also wrote in your op-ed that uh, electric vehicles, which damage roads just like the gasoline-powered vehicles do, but don't contribute to fund highway repairs by buying gasoline, and the percentage of the cost, or at least the tax on gas, goes to road repairs, so infrastructure repairs. So that won't uh, be t- that, that won't be helped by electric vehicles, but it's going to have to be paid for. So bottom line is always the bottom line. Well, joining me on the program, and we're glad to have him back, is Dr. Brian Conway. He's the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at Vancouver Infectious Diseases Center. Dr. Conway, thank you very much for coming back on the show. Thanks for having me back. Well, would you, and I just checked your Twitter feed, and you're very direct about the need to be vaccinated, that we need to get significantly more Canadians vaccinated as quickly as we possibly can. Would you make the case, please, and I I know you're probably tired of this, but would you make the case, please, for being vaccinated and perhaps reach out to those who are unsure? Well, I never actually tire of this. I think that um, what has led to our ability to reopen society the main thing has been vaccination. 
And uh, 75% or more of eligible Canadians have already received a first shot. We're almost at 40% in terms of fully vaccinated individuals. So what we're left with is about a quarter of the Canadian population that has not yet received a first shot. And convincing them to get their first shot and then subsequently their second shot is really our key to fully reopening towards the new normal, the end of the beginning, by Labor Day. Of that 25% that's left, we are told that about 20% are convincible. So 80% of the, of the, of the 25%. So 20% are convincible, 5% are really apparently dead set against getting a vaccine. But that's still, you know, 6 million Canadians that are out there sitting on the fence that we should be able to convince. So let us use every means possible to convince them to get vaccinated. It's safe, it's effective, and it has led to a plummeting in the number of cases. And we need everyone to get two shots to protect against the more potent, more contagious variants that are out there in the rest of the world that is only still at 10 or 12% vaccinated. Dr. Conway, what do you say to the fact that, uh, you know, you talk about partial reopening. Uh, so British Columbia has, as of yesterday, dropped um, significantly restrictions that were put in place because of COVID. Are you in favor of what the province has done? Absolutely. The numbers are down. We have no high-level community-based outbreaks. We have successfully blocked the entry of the more contagious, more dangerous variants, and the vaccination rate is higher than was even expected. So if you put all of that together, we can reopen. And because the number of cases is so low on a daily basis, we can find them all quickly identify the contacts, interrupt transmission networks, and prevent high-level outbreaks. So this is really a dress rehearsal for the fall. If we do this well between now and Labor Day, beginning on Labor Day, we'll be able to fully reopen. So it makes sense given where the pandemic is. It is a test. I mean, it's not, we're not, it's not fully reopened, and, and there's possibility of, of many things bad happening. But if nothing bad happens between now and Labor Day, we can go to the next step. What are your thoughts? And this may not be fair, and please tell me if it isn't, but what are your thoughts about uh, what Alberta is doing? And they they uh, substantially opened up everything as of the 1st of uh, July. Well, unfortunately, politics and science have uh, become enmeshed together. And we see this in the United States where people who support the Democratic Party are getting vaccinated. People who support the Republican Party are not and their vaccination rates are stalled, and we've exceeded them. So here in Canada, to me, it's a little bit the same thing, but at a lesser level. So I think in Alberta and in Saskatchewan, we're seeing what I think is premature reopening. So we need to be careful in terms of going forward as to whether that stalls us all going going uh, forward. But they're the people in charge of their provinces, and, uh, and it is what it is. Uh, variants. I... I almost don't want to ask about variants anymore, but we have to because, you know, we're constantly being reminded that not only do we have the Delta variant now, but this is an endemic situation. So variants or mutations of the COVID virus will continue to present themselves and we'll have to continue to deal with them. How do you think that we'll be able to go forward and do that? Will it be a case of constant booster shots? Is that your expectation or will we find another way to manage the reality that which will become essentially the new normal? Two things we need to do first is as we get fully vaccinated we need to reach out to the world and ensure that uh, the vaccine is spread 
to everyone uh, who, who's eligible to get it, anyone over the age of 12 right now, perhaps younger as, as we go forward. That will be the way to prevent the emergence of variants. Now, for the time being, we know that it requires, at minimum, double vaccination of the uh, two-dose vaccines that are available to protect in the best possible way against the variants. And there'll be new variants that are being, um, that are being developed that are emerging throughout the world. So this will wane. The, the immunity will wane over six to nine months, we think. The studies are already underway. Third shots are already being given in France. So I think we, it's going to be the timing of a third shot. And I think the best way to think about this is going to be like the flu, is that we're going to need a booster shot ultimately every year unless someone proves me completely wrong. But for now, this is the way to think of it. There'll be a booster at some point in the spring and then yearly shots and, and being careful of cases and the like. But for the vaccine, I think that's where we're going. How protected should those of us who are double-vaxxed and have gone through the two-week wait period between the second vaccination and where we are now, how protected should we feel, how confident should we feel about getting out and doing the things we did before? Pretty confident. The only things that are uh, still out of bounds, I think, are large gathering indoors, especially with people we haven't seen over the course of a year, and the full-fledged um, you know, concerts, hockey games, these, these huge gatherings that occur uh, indoors where people are sitting next to each other for several hours. I think if you're double vaccinated, those are pretty much the only two things that you should be avoiding. Dr. Conway, what are you keeping a professional eye on, as it were? What are you looking for? You're the infectious diseases specialist. What's got your attention and interest? Three things. The first is let's get the 25% who aren't vaccinated vaccinated. That's the key to the solution. Second, community-based outbreaks, such as we saw in the Yukon about a week or so ago, our ability to limit them, and thankfully we are able to limit them. And the entry into Canada, third thing, of any of these more dangerous variants. You talked about Delta, and now they're calling another isolate Delta Plus, and there's going to be more. So those are the three things that uh, sort of Keep me awake at night, as it were. This is the things we need to do well going forward. Thanks for the time, Dr. Conway. Really appreciate it. It's a pleasure. Let's all enjoy our newfound freedoms, understand what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do, and hopefully all together we'll be celebrating the beginning of the truly new normal on Labor Day. I can't wait. Dr. Gandhi, thank you very much for coming back. So uh, there's so much talk about this spike protein and what it is and what it isn't. What is it, Dr. Gandhi, and is it the threat that some people say it is? You know, um, it, it, I, no, it isn't. So essentially, to put it, mild, to put it clearly, um, what happens with the mRNA vaccines, and actually the DNA vaccines, is they have a little bit of genetic material in them to produce, for your body to produce the spike protein. You produce the spike protein in pretty low quantities, actually lower than you would get if you had a viral infection. Then you raise an immune response against that spike protein, which looks so different from your body because it's from the virus. And then you raise a robust immune response and the spike protein goes away. And so does the mRNA or the DNA uh, that you had in that vaccine. So I understand there's this idea that that spike protein can be toxic, but there's actually no evidence of that in the human body. Um, so, yeah. That's, that's to put it cleanly. So the, the spike protein does what? It alerts our bodies to the potential presence of the SARS 
uh, sorry, of the COVID, uh, well, they're all coronaviruses, but the COVID-19 uh, yeah. virus, it alerts our bodies, our, our body's defensive systems, immune system, to the p- possible presence of this particular virus and, and alerts our defense system to get to work. Yes? Yes, exactly right. So what happens is this spike protein, to take a step back, is the particular protein that connects the virus uh, to your cell. There is no virus in these vaccines whatsoever. They actually take a little piece of genetic material that makes your body code for this foreign spike protein that the virus has. Your body codes for that spike protein, makes the protein, sees it, and they're like, this is so weird. This is not what my body looks like. This looks foreign to me. I am going to make a strong immune system immune response against that spike protein. You make antibodies, you make T cells, and you, you, that spike protein goes away, it dissipates in your body, and you make a strong immune response against that spike protein. So if I and look at... Then, sorry, go ahead. Spike protein goes away. So, so if I look at the, uh, the numbers of vaccinations in the United States, over 300 million now, over 300 million doses of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccine uh, have been administered more than 300 million. Wouldn't it, doesn't it stand a reason that if this mRNA spike protein were very dangerous or had a dangerous component in it to us, that we would be seeing evidence of this juncture? No. Yes, that's a very good point. It's not actually just 300 million being administered in the U.S. There have actually been three billion doses a vaccine given worldwide. That's where we are with worldwide distribution of the vaccine. And we would have evidence that this was very toxic to the body. We would have evidence that, um, you know, people had damage in their body by now. We have disseminated so many vaccines worldwide, and we know it's a good vaccine. What do you say to people who um, are determined not to be convinced? I mean, what can you say? You know, I think that this kind of misinformation can be really concerning um, uh, for people. And uh, I think it is really misinformation um, for the vaccine. And uh, I just, I hope that we can reassure people that this is a, this is a good and it's a safe vaccine. And I guess that's just what I would say. I just hope that we can reassure people. Yeah. Um, because there's been so many vaccine doses given out. And people have been very safe, and it's very effective to prevent um, COVID-19 disease. In fact, we've seen severe hospitalizations and deaths plummet in places that have the vaccine. Dr. Gandhi, good to talk to you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you very much. Dr. Monica Gandhi, infectious diseases specialist, professor of medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, medical director of the San Francisco General Hospital, HIV clinic. I'm just looking at something, the quote from, um, and you can find it at verify.com, uh, a quote from one of the other doctors on this spike protein. And uh, the doctor says, the sound bite SARS-CoV-2 spike protein is toxic, is not technically wrong, also not news per se, but that has nothing to do with overall establishing of safety of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines, especially the mRNA vaccine. Um, so it goes on to say the spike protein in SARS-CoV-2 
is different from the spike protein created after the administration of the mRNA vaccine. Now I'm getting confused. Because we're taking me right to the edge of my comfort zone when it comes to science. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 